I'm Asan, and this is the Friday Show. The international break is over, and we're back to preview another busy weekend in the Premier League. Joining me to shake off the international break blues, I've got Leon and Howard. Morning, Leon. Morning. Morning, Asan. How you doing, mate? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. I'm excited uh, to get on with the Premiership weekend. Yeah, had enough of the international break I have. Morning, Howard. How are you? Uh, morning. Yeah, I'm fine, thank you. Not bad. Excellent. Not too early, is it? <laughs> I'll, I'll say to Lee, off, off air, it's good to get me up before midday. So, not that, <laughs> I re- not that I really lie into midday, but it's that autumn winter lull I get every year that's like, you know, when it's dark all the time. It's uh, You've done me a favour. No. So no, no, it isn't now. Excellent. Excellent. Um, well, look, as always, I've got an opening question. Um, Manuel Pellegrini is coming up against City for the first time since he left in 2016. Howard, how do you remember Pellegrini? <laughs> uh, have we got the time? It's a, it, it's a complicated one, this, in a way. <laughs> uh, just to do some some plugging of stuff, uh, I think Jacob Steinberg's doing a thing on Pellegrini in The Guardian, probably today or tomorrow, and he asked me some, some thoughts and I ended up sending him about 7,000 words. Um, he probably only wanted two sentences, and that's probably all that will appear in the article, if that. And I just couldn't stop talking because it's... Well, I always do that anyway, but it's a very... It's very hard. I mean, if you talk to City fans, you'll get a wide variation, I think, of opinions on this. And you can't you can't give a mark, you can't give a, a one-sentence reply to it because... It was strange circumstances and a reign that was really split into three separate sections. So, I mean, his first year, it's a 10 out of 10 for me. I thought it was an absolute revelation. You know, and he was a breath of fresh air after, I know people are fine with Mancini being fiery, but he was the holistic manager that calmed everything down after the end of Mancini's reign and the disappointing season. And then it all went to pot a bit. And the last season, he was a dead man walking. You know, he was just treading water, waiting for the inevitable. We all knew what was coming, what was happening. He knew probably from the start. He knew he was a caretaker manager. So all th- all things considered, he did okay. He played. You know, he served his role. But I think history in thirty times won't really. He won't have much more than a footnote. He won't be the one that's mentioned as much as. Every other manager around him, I don't think. Interesting. Fair enough. Leon, would you uh, would you concur with Howard there? Yeah, pretty much. He's covered it. I mean, the first season, you know, amazing. I mean, I'd still say that was Mancini's team to an extent, but he was he was uh, that calming influence we needed after those sort of emo- tumultuous emotion emotional years. I did find City play frustrating under under him, actually, at times. You know, like, um, when it was actually stressful to watch us, mm. uh, particularly in Europe, a couple of decisions. I think it was against was against Real Madrid when he played the Michelis holding midfield. I don't, oh, yeah. I, I think it was Barcelona, maybe. Barcelona, I think it was Barcelona. But yeah, so he made some more decisions, but he was, you know... Everyone sort of uses the cliche, he was the gentleman and, and whatever. I mean, he was, and I think he was great for us as a club. But it's a shame, really, because he's, he won a title. You know, we were always there or thereabouts, and uh, he will be a footnote, really, in history. Uh, one thing I would say, like a few managers around, and Roy Hodgson sort of kind of does it for me, is that I would never really see him inspiring confidence in young players. Especially when you see Pep, and I know I was banging on about Amazon, but the documentary, when you see that kind of inspiration, and then I, I could never see that with Pellegrini, how, how he'd do that. Yeah, um, it's hard It's hard because his public persona was just non-existent. Mm. So I never I never really know, was he like that behind the scenes, or was he just putting on a nuts because he didn't like giving anything away to the media? But if he's like that in private, then I can see why it all kind of just everything tailed off in the end. Uh, but he was the guy who got us to the semi-final of the Champions League, which no one else has done. He, like Mancini after his title win, was not backed in the transfer market. I think that's when Boney and Mangala came in. 
Yeah. So, so we're repeating the same errors. A lot of uh, extenuating circumstances, but he was, a sto- he was a stopgap. He was just a very, very long stopgap. And and he knew it. He got well paid. He was very civilised and decent about it. And the rest is history, really. But that first season is still is potentially still our best season. You know, and those four months when Negredo and Aguero were on fire was just as good as it gets. Mm. Leo, I'm sorry, what were you going to say? No, I was going to say, firstly, I think poor signings was, you know, a big part of it. Um, which again, you know, Boney was a player I always sort of fancied to come to us and then you wouldn't know he was so disappointing. But yeah. I think Negredo is actually a good, a good match for the Pellegrini era. You know, he was world-class. For half the season, and then he just tailed off, and then his career just disappeared. Yeah. Uh, so I think, yeah, we can sum up Pellegrini's reign by Negredo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, I mean, look, I think you've both covered most of it. I think, from my point of view, those who knew me then will know that I had a lot of time for Pellegrini. Um, and I think, actually, you both, I think you're right, but I think that you both been a bit harsh or I think I feel the perception of Pellegrini is quite harsh simply in the sense that I think we often forget that actually he was hamstrung by financial fair play he was the manager who paid for the excesses of Mancini in the transfer market because he had to deal with the summer of sanctions where City you know, for example, I know for a fact that he wanted to bring Sanchez to City and Sanchez was ready to come to City the uh, summer that he moves to Arsenal. But because we're we're restricted in the uh, in the transfer market in what we can spend and the club need a centre-back and they decide that Mangala is the one that they want because of how much Mangala costs, it makes it really problematic then to bring in Sanchez. So... I think he was a little bit hamstrung by the uh, by the financial fair play issues, and I think actually the other huge issue for Pellegrini, and you both touched upon it, is the spectre of Pep. I think that in amongst the world of football, about fourteen, fifteen months into Pellegrini's reign, people begin to know that Guardiola is going to be the next manager, or at least the conversation begins. Mm. Um, and I think it's very difficult to manage under those circumstances. Uh, And I think that that kind of, it almost follows into what happens in the summer before Pep comes when we sign De Bruyne and Sterling. Because I think De Bruyne and Sterling are Guardiola signings. um, And you just can't function as a team like that. I suspect that as good as those players are, I don't think that Manuel Pellegrini said, get me Kevin De Bruyne and get me Raheem Sterling. And I think that when you end up in a situation like that, where you're basically buying for the next manager, you, even though you might not realize it, you're sort of undermining the guy who's currently in charge. So, I mean, it was all for the best and it worked out for the best because we wanted Pep and it didn't really matter what we had to go through to get Pep and, Pellegrini's part of that journey in a way but it's a shame that he'll always have that shadow cast over him because I think he is a great manager and that title I mean in my lifetime that we've won three Premier League titles now but that was the second one it was as maybe not as exciting as the first one because of the way that we won the first one but in a weird way the second one was just as satisfying because of how good we were, because of the manner in which people seemed to ignore the fact that we had loads of games in hand and spent the entirety of the final third of that season saying that Liverpool were in complete control of where the title was going when that simply wasn't the case. So for us to win it like that, it made me, yeah, just really, really happy. So, yeah. Sorry for that Guardian piece that Jacob Steinberg did say, is it was the win tempered title win because the perception that Chelsea and Liverpool threw it away and for me that's one of the most and that's not a dick at Jake just the general premise that we only won two league titles because other teams threw it away is literally the weakest argument I've ever heard yeah I think ever as as if overtaking a team is somehow you know you have to have an asterisk next to it it's actually just shows the mental strength even in a I don't know if it's his second or third year. He's 
No, it'd be the second year when we, you know, was disappointed. City still won the last six league games of the season. Mm. But there was a mental strength in that side that, you know, uh, it's ridiculous. And Liverpool, of course, throwing it away means losing one game at home to Chelsea. That's what yeah. I mean. And I think they lost four on the row. So I think those last six games that season was Demacellis and Mangala as well. Mm. Yeah. They, had a, they had a really well, good partnership towards the end of the season. His, you just look at the squad. I mean, I know I looked at this squad in detail because of the argument that Jose Mourinho had to take on a, a much bigger rebuilding task than uh, Pep did. Uh, Pellegrini's final game was a what that one all draw at Stoke, I think. The Swansea, sorry. Uh, that just about got us into the top four and into the Champions League. We needed a draw to do that. And the side is, I mean, compared to what we've got today, it's a million miles away. It's a weak squad. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously dotted with absolute you know, brilliance. There's plenty of brilliance in there, but there's some really weak areas. Obviously, the full-backs. But as you say, Dean Michaelis, he was fine for a while, but obviously, by the end, was of little use. And it's, it was a squad that needed, you know, Basically, the squad he ended with was not a, a you know top class squad at all. So you have to take that into consideration. He wasn't fully backed. I know people were saying, "Well, he still had three hundred million to spend," and yeah, you know, it's true. He still had the money there, but to be honest, it wasn't spent very well in parts. Mm, he did make some. He did make some proper dud calls as well. Um, for example, I know for a fact that. Cheeky had lined up a deal for Alderweireld uh, when he goes back to because Alderweireld gets lo- he gets signed by Atletico Madrid and then he gets loaned out by Atletico Madrid. They don't want him, so he goes back and Cheeky lines up a deal and uh, Pellegrini goes, "No, no, no, I want uh, I want Di Michaelis." So yeah. he, he he made some calls in the transfer market that were very much his calls about bringing in players that fitted a certain type of profile that he wanted but I'm not necessarily sure. I think in a weird way, they gave Pellegrini more of a say in what players to bring in than they should have done, almost because they knew they were flicking him after two or three years to bring Guardiola in. Um, And it was kind of, you know, I almost feel like that thing that they did where they went, the summer before Pep comes, right, we're buying players for Pep. You should have just done that for two or three years. That's that's my take because in kind of doing the half and half thing and giving Pellegrini some control but not full control, you kind of left you, you you leave that gap where he can kind of moan and go. I didn't really get the players that I want that I wanted, but at the same time, from a club perspective, you've not really done absolutely what the right thing is because really nobody's saying that Dimitrakalis over Alderweireld even at that point was the right deal to do. It was only because he'd coached Dimichaelis before that he wanted him. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a bit tricky, I guess. And it was only four million, so probably could have got both, to be honest, but there probably wasn't room for to bring two defenders in. No. Dimichaelis was fine as a backup squad, you know, fourth choice, but yeah, it's not the same as uh, Odevarold, is it? So. No. And also, you know, I mean, again it's funny because I said I really like Pellegrini and now I'm about to slag him off even more I, I'd be, I was feeling guilty until now <laughs> yeah no he, he something else that, that I know that he did that really I'm just like you shouldn't have done that mate when he wins the title in 13-14 he goes in and he fights for Dzeko Kolarov Nasri all these guys to get new contracts and it's like mm, yeah no that's not none of those guys needed new contracts at that point I think that it was apparent in what had happened over Mancini's time and Pellegrini's first season, even even when he wins the title, where the limitations in the squad are and where it can be improved. And I think that that, that raft of new contracts was basically Pellegrini backing or rewarding the players that had done well for him, but not really reading the warning signs of what would come 12, 18 months later. Because, you know, if you look at the end of Kolarov's time at City, he's just, he's not fit for purpose. You look at the end of Nasri's time at City, it's not fit for purpose. And I think the warning signs with some of those players were on the wall. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, 
That's a little bit more of a criticism of, of Manuel. But he was a really nice guy. I really liked him. And yeah. the fo- some of the football we played was was excellent, even if it was a little bit um, simplistic defensively. I guess that's the polite way of... Uh, that's the polite way of, of putting it. Um, just out of curiosity, as a, as a kind of final word, um, Howard, do you look back more fondly on Mancini as a manager or on Pellegrini as a manager? <laughs> this is a this is another question that he asked for uh, that I answered. Uh, well, it has it has to be Mancini, and again, it's not a it's not a, it's fate in a way. It's like Mancini came first, and Mancini was the guy who changed the mentality of the club, changed our history. He's the one who took on Ferguson, took on United, and beat them. And for that reason, and of course, he didn't. You know, in some way, there's nothing either of these two managers could have done because this is how it played out. You know, the Aguero moment, Mancini has no say in that playing out. He probably expected a comfortable 4-0 win that day and uh, a nice title, you know, celebration. It, it wasn't supposed to be like that, but because of the way it all panned out and because he came first, he got our first trophy in, what, 44 years? He got our first Premier League title. He laughed in the face of Ferguson. He scored, his team scored six at Old Trafford. Mancini will go down as the more important manager and the better manager. We, okay. can't, we can't say. You'd have to switch them around to know who truly would have been the better manager. But that's the way it panned out. Very different circumstances. But of course, Mancini will always go down as poss- possibly our most important manager. Mm. Just doing a disservice to uh, our 60s and 70s period. But, you know, I think a lot of fans will see him like that, especially younger fans. So. Yeah. We'll always see him like that. So. Leon, what about for you? Yeah, I mean, obviously we won't be doing a three-part podcast on the Pellegrini years by the sounds of it. <laughs> <laughs> We've done it in 15 oh, minutes. We could do. <laughs> We've done we, it in 15 minutes. We, we, we could do it. It'd just be... You know, be 15 minutes being nice to him and then three hours of slagging off all the little things that annoyed everybody. And I suppose the woman wouldn't want to see him with his top off either, like uh, I'm in the summer. Um, oh, definitely. Yeah, no, I mean, there's nothing Howard said there. I mean, it's kind of mixed emotions and, and Mancini was the the first man in, wasn't he, really? Um, after Hughes had gone with the money and... and he was charismatic and emotional and that's always for fans. The fans are always going to buy into that more than a kind of well-mannered gentleman, which is quite sad really, but it's true. It's just the way of the yeah. way of the world, isn't it? Yeah, um, it is. But yeah, I mean, they, they were, it's like a stopgap in a way. And, and, you know, if Pep would have come in and not been a huge success that he has been and will continue to be, then maybe Pellegrini, would perhaps have a bit more love and at least a two-part podcast. But I think the <laughs> fact that Mancini was, you know, not next exciting football, but he was very charismatic. And then obviously Pep's come, you know, quiet first season then delivered. Then it really sort of does put Pellegrini sort of stuck in the middle as this nice old boy, you know? Mm. Yeah, no. Um, Listen, I'm going to be really honest. Uh, I remember Pellegrini more fondly than I remember Mancini, which is uh. an absolute—it's absolutely mental thing to say. But I, those who again, those who kn- knew me back then, uh, would scream hypocrisy if I turned around and said that I had more love for Mancini than I did for Pellegrini. Because as for everything that that Mancini did right, I just never talked to him. It, in the way that everybody else did. Um, I don't really know why that is. Or, I mean, I, I kind of do know why that is. Uh, but it's a little bit of a can of worms. Very briefly, I think that I always felt like when the owners came in, they were so kind of, they have been so generous with the managers in terms of, if you look at the, if you look at the transfer power that all the managers were given, it was enormous. And I think from very early on with Mancini, for everything that he did deliver, I felt that he kind of undermined his own position 
undermined his own players and also undermined the people running the club a lot. And we kind of remember him through very rose-tinted glasses as a guy oh, yeah. Who, yeah. who won all of those things, which I completely agree with. And that's amazing. But at the same time, he's the guy who, after he left City, said that Khaldun walked up behind him and effectively stuck a knife in his back and stuff like that, where it's just like, you know what? For, for what I think, Roberto Mancini's career since he left Man City speaks volumes about the level of coach that he is and that he was. And just, people will say the same thing about Pellegrini. It's absolutely true. But the big difference for me is that Pellegrini came in and towed the party line. Mancini wasn't prepared to tow the party line. And I think at a club like City, where you've got the ownership and executive setup that you've got, if you can't tow the party line, you should probably do one because there's not many managers who will find a better run club, better resources, better owners, better executives to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Um, the, f- the fact is, this is the question every, most, virtually every fan answers on emotion and not on mm. logic in a way. So that's why you get, yeah. Totally. That's what football's about. Totally. There were, there were many fans who still cannot accept why he was sacked Mancini. And they totally ignore what shit still that last season was. Yeah. How he he created his own downfall, how he alienated himself from not just the owner. Once you do it from the owners, you're gone anyway. And from the players, you're gone. I mean, virtually every player. I mean, he was try, kind of doing the Mourinho and trying to get himself sacked because he didn't get the backing in the summer transfer window, which again might have been FFP related. And it's like people just ignore that because, well, Aguero... Because FA Cup, because of everything else. Yeah. He was oh, look. a deeply flawed manager. Everything you say is right. But of course, people answer it on emotion, and that's because that's what football's about. It's about those Absolutely. moments. And, those, and it, it's basically, it's all about what you win. It's not, you know, piece of, you could have the flukiest season ever, but if you're a winner at the end, you'll be highly, more highly rated than a better manager who didn't get the breaks. And Absolutely. That's, that's the way it you goes. You boys should yeah. be in politics because I've changed my mind again. <laughs> I feel guilty, but you know there is something to be said, and and it's kind of, I think it's sort of subconsciously in us is that because a Mancini was a cool guy, and because he wore the scarf, and yeah. you know that he sticks in the mind more than Pellegrini, and and every point you Asan and Howard have made particularly well about that, you know, roasted spectacles, and and actually the very the last season all gets forgotten, and not just yeah. because of the Premiership winning the FA Cup, but also because. He was a cool guy. It's Bobby Mank. Yeah, you know what I mean, he, he he wore the scarf and he had the you know he had the swagger and I completely get that and he yeah. and everything that you know taking but, Ferguson on all of that sort of stuff. It's incredible. I totally understand why you know most people think I'm absolutely insane when I say that I prefer Pellegrini no, to. But no, well, they were both Mancini. both surely the right managers at the right time. Absolutely. I mean, look, we needed that charisma and stagger. Uh, stagger. Also, <laughs> that's, that swagger after uh, Mark Hughes and you know, and to take on United and be the top dog, and then because you know, because of the fiery nature of Bencini, we needed that holistic approach afterwards, the calm gentleman, and then Absolutely. we got Pep. So it all kind of worked in the right order in, in the end. Do you think actually? I'm taking. I'm going to take you both down a little digression before we look at the international break because really, who wants to talk about international football? Um, <laughs> do you think it would have? So, the one kind of mitigating thing in the whole Mancini, Bagheristein, Soriano fallout in his last twelve months in charge is that nobody can dispute that. Everybody at the club wanted Guardiola when Guardiola announced that he was leaving Barcelona. Begaristein was already at City. Soriano was already at City. Khaldun, um, Sheikh Mansour, they all wanted Pep Guardiola. Do you think things would have some... Do you think that we would be um, like further along somehow? Let's say that they convince Pep to come in the summer of... I'm sorry, so is it the summer of 11-12 that he goes to Bayern Munich? That's right, isn't it? Uh, or, no, he has a year off. He has it, Sorry, yeah, he has, he has the year off. And it's, in, and it's uh, t- at the end of 12-13 that uh, we appoint Pellegrini and, and he 
goes to Bayern. Do you think things would have been different if in that sliding doors moment Guardiola had gone, no, no, I'll do I'll do City next rather than, than Bayern Munich? From a City point of view, Howard, I'll start with you. Would things be different now? Do you think we would have all of this stuff that's happened would have been accelerated? Or do you think we still would have gone through because of the way the squad was set up, the type of players that we had here, it still would have taken Pep almost not Pellegrini time, but a, a similar amount of time to reshape the squad to his liking to become what we are becoming now. Yeah, I think it'd be slowed slightly because I mean we've discussed that he wouldn't have had an unlimited budget, as we seem as people seem to think we have now, which we don't, but you know. Obviously, this yeah, it's boring, but there are financial implications to answering this question. You have to take that into account, that he's had more resources for him now. My feeling is that he could have bought no one and still, you know, I think we'd still have had that opening season, learning period, tricky, up and down, roller coaster ride. But otherwise, yeah, I think he'd have gone along the same path because he's proving to me that he can pretty much work with you know, I mean, I think someone like Zinchenko, who I think will be a top player anyway, but players, you know, understated players like this could still come into this team and he could still carry out his philosophy and Delph and players like that. So he didn't need to make, you know, all the bit £60 million signings. I think yeah. it would have taken the same path. It may have been slowed slightly because he would have taken it because of the financial implications. To get the squad he truly wanted, I think would have taken perhaps an extra year and a, f- a couple more transfer windows. Uh, and because the squad was, as it, as you say, you know, as I said earlier, it's weaker than... Uh, all dead again, is it? I mean, yeah, they probably did have more work to do, but he still had that work. As I said, when he took over from Pellegrini, there was a huge rebuilding process there. So totally. now I, I think it would have taken a very similar path, mm. probably just slightly slower. Hmm. Hey, Leon, I've got a slightly different question for you. Is there a player that Guardiola didn't get to coach that Pellegrini and Mancini did who you wish Pep could have got his hands on? Oh, yeah. Balotelli, 100%. Shout, mate. 100%, because uh, I'm not doing any mind your toes name drops, but a friend of mine said about Balotelli could be one of the world's best players, but obviously his own personality... uh, was always fighting against that and fighting everybody else for that matter. But mm. um, but yeah, I think Balotelli under Pep would... Have, I mean, it might not have worked out, but I think that would have been a really uh, interesting... And I think Nasri as well. Nasri, it's a, it's a shame that uh, that didn't work out. I know you were sort of saying he was sort of past his best perhaps earlier, but I still think the way he plays would have fitted in quite well with Pep. Mm. I did have you one know who- thing. Sorry, go on. Go on. No, I did have one thing to say just about the timing of it all. I know, only because I thought of it, was that if he would have come to our second, as his second club, it obviously would have probably only lasted two or three seasons. Whereas I quite like the fact that there's nowhere else in Europe to go. He's, he's managing the best two leagues yeah. and now he's here and he could stay for longer and longer. So I'm kind of happy that, that we had to wait. Yeah, good shout. Very good shout. Um, I was just going to say very briefly, uh, for me, uh, the player, probably be Tevez, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I imagine that, that Carlos, in his kind of footballing attributes, is you know almost close to the perfect Pep mm-hmm. forward. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he, 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 he's got the, uh, he's certainly got the hunger and the work rate and the desire, at least when he wanted to. And he had so much ability that would have been interesting to see. Guardiola try and coach somebody like Tevez. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, there's the young defenders as well, yeah, and the Stasic and Savic and the ones that I thought were going to be the the real deal and just suddenly weren't and slipped away and stuff. Yeah. I think he would have. That's a good even, There's a chance they would have stayed and made more. He had done a Laporte with them and just made, you know, moulded them into. I mean, the I, I, Savic has done all right. I think the Stasic. Hasn't really. I mean, I thought he was going to go right to the top. Uh, but yeah, I think it would be interesting to see how he'd moulded them. Yeah, definitely. Even Micah Richards, I mean, mm. you know, like if you look at the way that Micah's career has gone, um, you wonder whether... I mean, that's the thing about Guardiola that really is probably, for me, the most important thing 
for any club that he goes to is before anything else, Guardiola is a coach on an individual level. He wants to improve every player that he's working with. And we might take that for granted, but that's not the way all managers are. There are plenty of managers who can't even be asked going out onto the training pitch. Do you know what I mean? They kind of rock up um, the last training session before the match, that sort of stuff. So I think that Pep getting his hands on any young player with potential is can only be a good thing. And, you know, whether whether you think about Micah or you think about Stevie Island or, you know, you go back further and you start dreaming and going, what if Michael Johnson was a little yeah. bit younger or older? And what if Pep would have, you know, if he'd have had a coach like Pep? I mean, you know, I think that's the that's the great thing about having somebody like Guardiola is just that his desire to coach and improve uh, each player that he's got. He's got um, that magic dust that Fergie had, hasn't he? That players, you know, players who left United afterwards were never the same once they'd left United. I think Guardiola has that magic dust, doesn't he? Totally, totally. Just you get, if you get inside the head of a footballer, and I don't think it can last forever. I think if you're not that you play mind games, but if you live it, if you try and live inside the head of, of your squad, eventually you'll burn some of their heads out. But before you burn them out, they'll, you know, you, you effectively control them. You live inside their head. That's a, that's a big thing on match days. Um, okay. Look, let's, let's have a brief look back at, uh, at this international break. Howard, me and you talked about the uh, about the Nations League and and how it's kind of rejuvenated our interest in in well I suppose the World Cup rejuvenated our interest in the national team but it's kind of rejuvenated our interest in international football outside of big tournaments. Leon, I've not really spoken to you about it. Um, how ha- have you watched the Nations League? How do you has it changed the way you view international football outside of tournaments? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I'm, I'm excited about this England side. Uh, I'm not as excited as I was as a uh, as a young man, uh, but perhaps that's just there's not enough room for two football teams in your life to get too excited about. But um, no, it definitely has. I think it's you know it had a mixed response at first, but I think there's international breaks are bad enough, but when there's some sort of competitive side of them I think it makes it interesting and you know no one can deny that Sunday afternoon it was it was an exciting afternoon in the end rather than you know the dreary international break Sunday so I think and I think Southgate I was you know I was I wasn't sure how he'd do because his you know his management career was again mixed but he's proved himself to be a decent England manager for for once, and and it is exciting. I think Pep has got a lot to do with it. If I'm honest, not just because we've got four Man City players playing, but I think because because I think you know the philosophy of football's changed, and that's in all the leagues. But no, I'm pretty excited, and I think the Nations League as a whole has brought some much needed competition. So yeah, okay. I'm happy. Howard, uh, if you look at the the kind of city centric nature of the uh, of the England team. How how does that make you feel in terms of, you know, I mean, I, I mean, you same age, we grew up with United players dominating the England team. And as a kind of consequence of that, I, you know, kind of vacillated in terms of how much love I had for the England team. It's, you know, it's pretty difficult to get up and cheer a Wayne Rooney goal, even if it's for England. Do you know what I mean? Or certainly it was for me growing up. Um what, was it similar for you? And do you feel now maybe a closer affinity with the England team now that you suddenly see so many City players there? Uh, no and no. <laughs> uh, oh, all right. Well, no, I, I, no <laughs> I could disconnect for who they played for. When I, when I watched England, I just wanted the team to do well. I didn't really care who they played for. Uh, now I'm going to... You may want to edit this out. I'm going to... Uh, give some credit to United fans now because when they dominated the England side they used to chant Argentina Argentina at their club matches because they hated the ridiculous analysis they got and I thought 
What a pathetic bunch of arrogant arseholes they are. And now I fully understand where they were coming from. Because mm. you've seen the utter bullshit and drivel, you know, written and talked about every time a City player misplaces a pass for England or misses or, you know, the absolutely ignorance. And it's like sometimes you don't... I'd rather they just didn't play for England at all, weren't picked, because I can't be doing with the hassle of just having to go on social media online and, and read this. I think it's better now. I think people, because there's a, a buzz about the England side, a positivity, I think that's... I think that's transferred, it's transmitted itself through, uh, you know, what people are saying about all the players and including the City players. I think it's dawning on people that, you know, the likes of Sterling and Stones are actually pretty damn good at football. Uh, So it's a bit easier to watch now. So yes, I am getting that positivity back. But to be honest, a year ago, no, I just couldn't stand to see Sterling on the pitch for them because I couldn't be doing with the hassle and he couldn't. And like hundreds of, you know, even like Gerard and Scholes and all that lot, hundreds of players who don't don't transfer the club form to international stage, I still think there's a bit of that with Sterling and Stones and whatnot because at the end of the day, they're not playing in, in a side that's as good as their club side. So, uh, But I can disconnect it when I watch England. But even though I'm feeling positive now, it's still only, it, yeah it pales into insignificance compared to what I feel from my club side and it always will. Uh, but it's, it's just be nice when people actually support the team as one, you know, we can all support this team, whoever they play for. That's when I'll start enjoying it more. Okay. Um, Leon of the, uh, of the city England contingent stone, Sterling Walker, Delph, um, which one of them, which one of them do you feel briefly is the most important to to England right now? And then, if you just look back at the um, at this break, which one of that contingent do you think has had the most positive international performances from a City point of view? Well, I think because obviously Walker was uh, playing kind of out of position the World Cup. I'd say, and Sterling, who I'm permanently sticking up for when you're watching England games. Um, it's a little bit up and down, as Howard said. I would definitely say Stones is the most of assured of the four in the side. Okay. Uh, and the most influential. You know, I think he's even future England captain material. But that depends, obviously, if that happens at club and Pep sees him as that, that kind of leader. But I think Delft did the best for his uh, England career at the weekend uh, over the games. I thought Delft was really assured. And, uh, yeah. I think of the four, he's really kind of given Southgate a bit of a selection headache for the next next few games, but luckily it's not till February. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, Stones and Delph, I'd say. Okay. Should be, no, should be noted that he's come back to the back four and see Southgate recently. Yeah. And apparently I've not seen him much of him play. Trippier's form's gone off the edge of a cliff. So but with the back four, though, Walker just suddenly becomes a lot more important because he's not going to be playing in them in that back three instead. And, you know, so yeah. suddenly three three of the England players are very important in that side, yeah. And actually, or maybe no. four. Maybe four. I think Delph, you know, he could cement that place down in the side. So. Just one thing to add. Sorry, but actually, I know we did really well in the World Cup. Well, we, we got through, didn't we? But, I mean, it, it kind of a little bit frustrating now that we the back four works perfectly. And also the fact with some creative midfielders that we didn't have... And not taking Ashley Young, who I don't have nothing against Ashley Young, but it, it was a weird choice. Mm. You think, hold on a minute, well done Southgate, you for getting in that semi final. But what was some, there's some big mistakes there. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that's a fair shout. I think that for a lot of people, um, Southgate kind of committed himself to three at the back, and he showed at the World Cup that he maybe wasn't ready to change that. Didn't have the I don't want to say, I don't want to say foresight. I don't want to say he wasn't brave enough, but I imagine that he's the kind of guy who had probably decided, I've trained with this formation. This is the formation that I've kind of hung my hat on. I'm not going to change it. I don't think he changed it at any point mid-game, no. did he? Unless I'm mistaken in the World Cup, which sort of speaks volumes if you look at what happens in the Croatia game and how anemic we we did look. Um 
So, but I mean, look, credit to him for exactly. for changing it for changing it. Now, um, last thing, Howard on Delph. I've been thinking a lot about our conversation in the um, in the International League Matters podcast. You're Fabian Delph's agent, right? Hmm. <laughs> what are you telling him Excellent. come next summer? What are you saying? What are you saying to Delph come next summer? Uh, well, we'd have to see how many games he gets. But well, let's say firstly, that well, depends what sort of agent I am. Do I want do I want a one million pound bonus next summer, or do I want to just look after my player? Well, uh, you want to look after your player, mate. Right. Well, he stays where he is. Then I, t- I can't see if, as we expect, say City go on to win, retain the league title. Say they get at least to the latter stages of the Champions League, as they should. Say they win another domestic cup. Why would he want to go anywhere else? Um, I'm just be- not sure that playing an extra 10 to 15 games somewhere else is more positive than picking up trophies, being part of this group, being part of history-making period in a club's history. He's settled. He does get games. And the fact is he will st- still keep picking up injuries. So... If he goes somewhere else, let's not assume he's going to play 40 games. He may still be playing 25. Yeah. Uh, for me, he's at the perfect place. If he stays fit, I think he will get games. I mean, th- it's just... I don't know how many, just or where. I mean, will he be allowed to play in centre midfield? We keep saying that Fernandinho will be rested, and he, he never is, so... But I, I don't think he'd be unhappy at the moment. I just don't think he'll be unhappy. I think he doesn't need to play every single game. Uh, it depends how... Do you know how old he is? He was 20, 29 27? yesterday. I think. 20, right, well, as I said, I think I said on the thing, within the summer after, maybe a different situation. You've got one payday left, maybe, but you're also coming towards the twilight years of your career. He may want to go somewhere else for a different experience to try and get 40 games a season. But for now, I think he'll be quite settled, and if he and he'll be happy if he stays fit because he's continued to have those injury problems. Yeah, yeah, he was twenty. He was twenty nine. Sorry, Asan. No problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's a, I think that's a very fair shout. I think again, uh, very briefly, not to not to to sound paranoid, but I think that um, the watching world were a lot more generous of uh, if I think back to the nineties and the two thousands and maybe England players playing at other big clubs, uh, sitting on the bench a lot. Um, I think in general, the watching world were a lot more generous than they are when English players at city aren't playing week in and week out. I think there's a, there's a I mean, I've touched upon it before the fact that, you know, it city was seen as somewhat of a, um, you know, a, a dumping ground for England players that you don't get minutes if you play at City, completely ignoring how important guys like Lescott, Richards, Barry, Joe Hart were to the titles that we won under Mancini and under Pellegrini. I think there was always this sense of, you know, oh, England players, English players don't really get a chance at Man City. Um, and I actually think that's not the case. I don't think it's been the case at any point since the takeover. I think with Brian Marwood at the club, there's always been a strong desire to make sure that you have England players, English players, a lot of them, in and around the first-team squad. So, Was it in yeah, 2009 I mean, I, when we had seven playing in one game? Or was it 2010? Do you remember that? I do remember that actually. It sounds about right because Wayne Bridge will have been around right, around Phillips, that time as well. Um, right, Phillips was Miller, there. Barry. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. A lot of there's a there's a there was a big England contingent around that time, and I do think you know moving forward as well. I expect that over the or certainly whilst Pep Guardiola remains in charge at City, um, when City want an English player, for example, like they wanted Sterling. I suspect that English player will want to move to to City before any other club. So I think it's you know the I think we'll see it more rather than less over the next yeah. five or ten years. And certainly as as we begin to develop more technically able players in England. Sorry, Howard. 
Yeah, no doubt England's chances have not been hampered by being at City and not being an obvious first choice. And he no. was even captain once last week, so... Yeah. Yeah, all in all, he must be quite pleased with where he is right at this moment. So. And as his yeah, agent, no. Howard, just one thing to bear in mind, is that <laughs> he, he is a huge part of that City dressing room. You know, like yeah. I saw Pep write something or say something in the week about, you know, his influence in the dressing room. And you can see from... I know it sounds like duh, 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 in between those beta about the Amazon video um, <laughs> is that, you know, he's a massive part of that dressing room in bringing all the players together. So he's definitely yeah. someone you want. And that's important, isn't it? You, you've seen that city squad. They're all young. They're all uh, playing their best football and they're all on a hell of a lot of money. It, I'm always talking about the sort of this part of it all, but it is so important to have someone, a character like him around the dressing room. Completely yeah. agree. Completely agree. Um, right, boys, I want to push this forward. Before we talk about City and West Ham, the game itself, uh, Spurs play Chelsea. Uh, I think it's the late kickoff on Saturday at Wembley. We've spoken a lot about Chelsea this season. We haven't really talked a lot about Spurs, I don't think. Um, statistically, unless I'm mistaken, this is their best ever start to a Premier League season, or certainly if it isn't, it's not far off. And yet, there seems to be a a cloud somehow hanging. Whenever I read about Spurs, the slant is generally a negative one. Um, Howard, before I ask our, you know, expert on London football, that is Leon... um, (laughs) Howard, just from what's your northern take on the very Spursy situation at Spurs right now? What's what's going on there? Yeah, well, there was obviously over the summer they didn't sign anyone, so that was one thing that they weren't pushing on in a way. But I guess the negativity, I, I guess, surrounds the stadium as much. Yeah, what's happening off the pitch is rather clouding everything else at the moment, and the you know the delays, the endless delays, the costs going up, and you know, that will affect how future investment in players. Uh, is there a cloud on the pitch? Not really. They just they just don't change in a way. They keep doing the stuff. They're there or thereabouts. And from my northern perspective, no one really talks about them a lot. Uh, and yet there they are, 27 points from 12 games, point behind Chelsea, who three weeks ago we were saying we were in a three-way title challenge and still maybe uh yeah they just they just keep doing their thing they surprise me and you know that that's a you know big compliment to their manager mm. uh, without the kind they are kind of a bit stronger because more is you know starting to perform lamella who's you know been there for so long is finally getting fitness and performances out of him so the kind of I'd hate to say two new players, but it feels like they have strengthened a bit by having them. Uh, they're just a tidy side as always, who just kind of fall short, fall short because they don't invest enough to take them to the top level. But yeah, they're just chugging along and they're still picking up results. And I think their away form is better than anyone's. You know, in the calendar year, even when they don't like Crystal Palace, I saw some other game that. It was a pretty dire game. It was nothing special, but they got the result again. So they, they're not putting in sparkly performances, but they really do pick up points even when they don't play well. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, quite dogged and uh, determined side. So, yeah, as you were really for the last three years. Um, Leon, do you think that Pochettino is the most underrated manager in the in the top six in so much as... Do you think the job that he's done doesn't get enough respect when you look at, and I don't want to talk about net spend, so I want to talk very simply, if you look at the players that have been signed and the amount of money that they've spent signing players since Pochettino arrived at the club, if you look at the job that he's done, would you say that he's the most underrated manager in the top six? Well, he hasn't won anything. I mean, I've got... I think he's a decent manager. I think he's done a really good job with Tottenham. When you asked the question to Howard, I wrote down two words, stadium and boring. They, maybe because they haven't, you know, been challenging as such for a couple of seasons, but I just find them, I I wouldn't rush to watch my TV to watch a Tottenham game 
which in the past I would have done. So I think he's built a really settled, uh, financially rewarding squad. But my instinct would say boring. So when you ask whether he's overrated, underrated, uh, I think he gets a lot of credit. I think, like Klopp, he gets perhaps too much credit in my eyes. But I could see him doing a great job at Real or United as well. So I think he's got it in his locker to be an amazing manager. But for some reason, I can't put my finger on it. But Tottenham just equals boring. <laughs> and, and that's not what Tottenham are all about. Obviously, yeah, over the years, they've been a great FA Cup side and they've had interesting players. But I'm trying to think, obviously, Ericsson is a fantastic player. Uh, and, you know, one of our own, Harry, you know, is the world's best striker ever, you know, ever according to the press. Um, so I'm not, I sound a bit harsh. I'm not anti-Tottenham at all. And, but I just just don't think they're very interesting. And that game we played at Wembley a few weeks ago on that cold Monday night, they offered nothing. Mm. Uh, and yeah, so I don't know. I mean, Spurs are always that side you'd switch the, the telly on and, and watch, actually. But I mean, maybe I'm just getting completely uh, with this podcast and obsessed by Man City. A lot of my mates say on WhatsApp groups I've become blinded. Uh, so maybe I don't watch as much other other clubs at the minute. But no, I just I just find them slightly boring. Okay, fair enough. Um, Howard, if you look at a if you look at the way in which the league table at the top is shaping up, do you think we're kind of? I, I read an interesting piece that uh, Paul Joyce did in the Times about City's record against the top six uh, since the start of last season. And I think City have picked up 32 or 30 points in that top six mini league, which yeah. is 10 or 11 points more than everybody else. Um does that begin to suggest that in these, in particular this season as well, um, that in these head-to-heads between the rest of the top six, they've all got to go out for a win, that a point basically suits none of neither of them? Yeah, that's a fair point. Anyway, they may not be thinking like that. They may be just be looking at the table, the fixtures, and thinking, well, you know, we're not losing touch, so the draw's not the end of the world. But as you, you know, there's been articles written that the top six, and it's not six really, it's five. And we can't United aren't in it anymore. So unless we're putting Bournemouth into it now, uh, we assume are still six. That they, you know, that that they take virtually full points from the you know the lower half of the table. So if this trend continues, that you know the top teams win virtually every match against the weaker teams, then suddenly. Yeah, titles and top fours and the positions totally you know, rests very heavily on the the mini league between the top six. So absolutely, it could become key in in you know not who wins the titles well, but who in the order of the rest who misses out on Europe. So yeah, uh, there is it's quite a valid question if if the gap is is uh, increasing between the top five and the rest of the league. Uh, who do you think wins that game tomorrow? Uh, it screams draw to me. Okay. Leon, what about for you? Who wins that game tomorrow? Uh, I'd say, yeah, one-all draw, actually. I mean... Yeah, one-all, yeah. It's, it's so hard to say. The Wembley thing is so dull. I don't know why I've suddenly got grumpy. We're talking about... It's a caffeine come down, you are. <laughs> for some, no, I just, I just think... They need to get to their new ground. I think they need to get to their new ground and they'll be a different side and I'll be buzzing about Tottenham. But yeah, one or... No, you won't, mate, but (laughs) I do do take your point. Um, I I think Chelsea will do it. I I think that um, Spurs will be... will continue to be incredibly efficient against all the teams that they should beat. Um, My gut feeling is that in those top six head-to-heads this season, I think Spurs might fall down there. Um, Yeah, so I think Chelsea nicked that. Right, let's talk a little bit about West Ham against Manchester City. Um, Leon, 
Very simply, with the attacking players that West Ham have, even taking into account the injury to Yarmolenko, so then I'm talking about Arnautovic and Felipe Anderson, um, do they have the players who could trouble City? I think they do. I mean, I was this week I was thinking about their squad. I saw Carroll and Wilshere are back in okay. training. And then Hernandez is still there, isn't he? Yes, he is. I mean, yeah, they've been become a the, disaster, there, haven't they? Yeah, they've sort of become the QPR of the Premiership, haven't they? Where they've got a great squad of kind of a mixed bag of old knackers all around the, the Europe, and on paper it looks pretty good. So I think you know they have got the players to cause us some problems, but in all honesty, I can't see it. I can't see. Um, when we played there last time, I think I went to the game and Hazus played up front and Sane and Sterling. I think it might be, yeah, was it last season or the season before? And and it was like a, a new kind of, it was the, the start of City. It was uh, the season before, it's it Jesus. Yeah, it was. When he, it's like his first start, I think, almost. And West Ham had... 3-0 down after like 15 minutes yeah. or something and like that. Yeah, sort of, it was, and it was like the first game that we, you saw this kind of new wave of Man City, of City you know, where yeah. where Sane, Sterling, it was all so exciting. It was all moving so quick. And uh, and West Ham got blown away. And like, you know, they've got some decent enough players. Pellegrini's got them playing, you know, with a system now. And uh, But no, I don't think they've got anyone to worry us at all. Okay. Um, Howard, um, looking at it from City's point of view, obviously we're recording this before Pep has done his press conference. We don't know whether Bernardo Silva really is injured or to the extent of his injury. Mm. Um, But if he is injured, how do you expect City to line up? Are we kind of in, uh, are we at the stage now where everything picks itself and that includes when somebody gets injured who replaces them or are there question marks? Oh, no, I mean, there's so much depth that I still can't tell you <laughs> what he will do if Bernardo's out. So, but personally, quite happy if it just Gundogan comes in for a game. And then that's it. Mm. <laughs> you know, Sterling, Sane, or Mahrez. You know, any of the, you know, just, you know, blimey, how do you decide between these? Aguero, uh, any of those three, Gundogan in, Fernandinho in, David Silva. Yeah. I mean, it's just love to see Bernardo fit. Maybe he is because I think he's pulled out of a Portugal game before and was fine at the weekend. Yeah. So I think they're quite good at pulling players out at the smallest sign of a problem. You know, especially as it's they'd already qualified anyway for the Champions uh, Champions League Nations League finals. So you know, it was an important match. So yeah, just just so many options there, really. Uh, that you, you bring Gundo in and carry on as you were. So Okay. Um, looking at the... Uh, Leon. Looking at the, looking at the way that West Ham have started this season. Um, do you think that Pellegrini is a manager under a little bit of pressure? Or do you think... Because it's, it's a bit weird down at, the bottom, down at the bottom of the table where you kind of feel like... You know, West Ham feel a little bit safe, but then you also feel like one defeat. It's so tight down there. The couple of defeats sucks you right back in. If you look at the money that that West Ham have spent, is Pellegrini under a little bit of pressure between now and the turn of the year? Because they, I know that after City, they've got a very eminently winnable run of games. Is this the moment for Pellegrini in 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 the next four or five weeks to basically? show that West Ham are a mid-table or above club? And if he doesn't, will he be under pressure in January? I think for the money they've spent and the backing they've given him, I think he will be under some pressure. But I think he's such a gentleman that who's going to sack him? (laughs) 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 You know, no, but I I think he'll be given a chance. I think even though they're owned by two shitbags, let's be honest, I do think they'll want some... um, well, they need to stay in the Premiership. I don't think there's a problem there. But I, I'd have thought they'd, they'd see him as the man to steady the ship for a couple of seasons, you know, like we did, really. 
Um, they're in a different position to us, but, you know, they need to stick with him. You know, they're talking about buying Nazri. I mean, I'd love to see their wage bill. You know, yeah. Everyone moans on uh, Twitter about ours and the other teams at the top, but, I mean, that it must be enormous. I mean, the, yeah, the, totally the agree. The squad is enormous. So, yeah, he will be under some pressure, but I'd like to think that he'd be given a chance because, you know, he'll get, if he gets the player, the team right, you know, I thought Wilshire would have a big season this season for him. Um, then they've got every chance. Um, and I don't think he'd be under huge amounts of pressure. But, you know, it, down at the bottom there, it's all about a run. You know, win Absolutely. three or four games in the trot on your mid-table. And, you know, the pressure's off now to the rest of the season. But get stuck in a few dodgy draws and, and lose against a few other sides in the bottom half. And you're under huge amounts of pressure. Okay. Um, Howard, just to, to kind of wrap this up a little bit, obviously we've got the Champions League game against Lyon next week as well. Um, right now, are we in a position where we just need to avoid complacency? Yeah, well... Do, no, do you no see dear. what I'm getting... You see the point I'm trying to make here that, like, it's very... It's interesting whenever we do these podcasts because as this season has progressed, and I found myself in this situation last season as well... It's very difficult to preview games because City play the way they play. So it's not like there's going to be a big tactical change that you can talk about. Team selection, the team more or less picks itself. Even when you talk about opposition and, well, yeah, they're a threat. But at the same time, you know, at the end of this podcast, I'll give, I'll ask us to do score predictions and we're all going to predict a City win. Not because we're being optimistic, but because we expect a City win. Um, so... Yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, of course, because if they step onto that pitch expected to win, they're not up against Sunday League players, they'll get a shock. Uh, and also, once you're in a game and your attitude's wrong, you can't just switch it on. We've seen it before when the team's not functioning properly, it takes time or something goes wrong. It really takes time to click into gears. Uh, yeah, it's the same as any other game, isn't it? I mean, Pep's been banging the drum all season. Just as league champions as well, it's going to be harder. But psychologically, you've got to keep that intensity going again for another nine months is difficult. And that's, I think for him, that's his biggest challenge of the season. Is literally to get those players going onto that pitch with 100% intensity week after week after week after week after week. So, yeah, yeah got to keep going and keep going and keep going. Do you think that's... Because even Leon game is getting, yeah, even after putting six past Shakhtar, we're not qualified yet. We still have to keep and want to win the league, uh, the group, sorry. So, yeah, it's got to keep, there's no no time to rest here at all. So, mm. um, Leon, final, final thing from you then. Do you think that that's where actually, not that injuries are a good thing, but... Because we've got a depth in the squad, it means that the players, if there is an injury or if Guardiola has to rotate because there's a Champions League game coming up, the players who come in come with a certain level of hunger to perform, to show that they deserve that starting place. That is that actually as important as having the the best 11 or the settled 11? Yeah, I think so. I think we saw it last season, didn't we? We had injuries and... And it was the system that controlled the side and people just slotted in and it made no difference. Some games would have three major first-team players out and it made no difference at all. You know, I listened Is that the system or is that also the hunger of the, the hunger, players no, coming the hun- in? The hunger of the squad, yeah, sorry. The hunger of the squad. Uh, and, you know, I remember last season, we, a few times we talked about, oh, well, you know, Zinchenko's playing there and... Delft's playing here and we've got him in the hole. And it made no difference. It was unbelievable. In fact, we played better sometimes when we didn't have the full side. Um, yeah. And I and I mean, I know great sides in the past, you know, we don't, don't talk about rugby on this podcast, but there were times when that England squad in the rugby, it was 15 years yesterday they won the World Cup, which is perhaps why I've mentioned it. It's been all over my Twitter feed. But, you know, someone would be injured and, and, and a couple of players would slot in. And it made no difference. It was a squad. And we've had it in the cricket occasionally where there's been a decent squad and it makes no difference when we're number one in the world a few years ago. And now with the City side, if there's two or three injuries, it makes no difference. It's the squad and the hunger of the squad as a whole that makes no difference. And, 
You know, they're a machine. And I think one thing about tomorrow and the, the stadium now suits us. A stadium like that suits those players. Uh, you know, West Ham before, you know, and I think Liverpool still survive on it. The stadium, closeness to the to the pitch, you know, mm. and it's all sort of, you know, up and at them. But I think the stadium like that really does suit us. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Um, to... Give me your score prediction then, mate. Well, mate, I've been listening to you recently. You're, you get every fixture, you get every result right. You're spot I've got on. The last few right. No one sure. mentions it. No one mentions fantasy league or your predictions. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I've I, got a lot wrong. I'd say I still think we can always let in a goal. So I'd, I'll go four-one. Okay. Oh, big, big. Like it, uh, Howard. Uh, two all. What? What? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so I don't think it'll be quite the ridiculous Kate walk. I don't don't know why. Maybe it's three o'clock. It's not the telly. Stupid reasons that mean nothing whatsoever. I'm going to go three-one to City. Mm. I um, I think it'll be interesting tomorrow. I think that we will win, but I think it will be very tight. I'm going to go with. Do I think that they will score? No, I don't. But I think it'll be two-nil. With City getting their second goal late on and West Ham having a moment in the second half where it looks like they might equalise. Okay, I meant, there we go. I meant That's to ask you prediction. something. Foden, is he going to play yeah. tomorrow? Start? I don't think so. No. I don't think so. I think away in the Premier League, I just, I, I think that in the pecking order, Gundogan remains above Foden. So, um, if Bernardo's injured, De Bruyne's injured, maybe with an eye on Leon. It's possible he could get close to the first team, but I still would expect Pep to just play Silver, um, David Silva and Gundogan in both the West Ham game and the uh, and the Leon game, rather than giving Foden one of those games. Um, yeah, that's my vibe anyway. Uh, right, boys, wrapping this up. Howard, thank you very much. Pleasure as always. Leon, thank you very much. Pleasure to be back. Thanks, Sam. Howard. Everybody who listened, thank you very much. This was the Friday show on the Night 320 podcast. If you're not a member of the Night 320 player, go to our website, sign up. We do loads of podcasts every week. All things City, things outside of City, just football in general as well. Um, those of you who are members, we will be back with a review either Sunday or Monday of the game against West Ham. In the meantime, be safe, be well, have a lovely weekend. And as always, up the blues. <laughs>